So, yeah, I, I do like this episode. It's a very sweet episode. It's a very moment episode. It's all about intangibles, actually. <laughs> Funny how that works out. It's also a very strong example of Cloud Effect. Because the premise here is dumb. If I could just be completely blunt. In fact, it's so dumb, I am astonished they thought they could get away with this. No one, no one says anything on either side of any conversation that helps to indicate in any way, shape, or form the time discrepancy. Nothing? Three years, granted, isn't a huge chunk of time. But still, you'd think there'd be something, right? But I'm willing to forgive that because it gave us a good episode. Funnily enough, Deborah Wilson, who plays uh, Lisa Cusack, whatever her name is, she does a really good job of it, which is funny because I mostly recognize her from Mad TV, where she usually played Uhura, actually. Hmm. But she does a really good job of it. Uh, one of the big points of this episode is the usage of negative space. Now, I don't know what that's called in audio terms, but in, in, in art design, um, there's generally considered two ways you can present an idea or a concept positive or negative space. So, for example, uh, let's say I have a picture and I've drawn, you know, a, a bird over here in the corner. So that's positive space. Now let's say I instead draw a night sky and a tree and a moon, and there's this space which is kind of forming the shape of a bird, but it's just empty space. But it still gets across the same idea. That's negative space. That's that's the usage of it. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just a different method of um, trying to draw your attention to something or to try and get across an idea, a concept, an object, or whatever. So when it comes to audio design, it's the same general concept. And by audio design, I actually am misspeaking. Uh, what I mean is audiovisual design, an AV medium, whether it's uh, movies or books. Or sorry, not books. God, wake up, Laura. Movies, shows or video games. This is actually one of the reasons why uh, I'm so big on good voice acting when it comes to video games in particular, is because in many cases that voice acting helps to sell in ways that it otherwise wouldn't. Let me use a direct example. System Shock 2. I'm sure some of you have played that game. And you may or may not know that there are several things called audio logs in that game, or data logs or whatever. And in those audio logs, they convey basically the entire story of the game. Like, if you ignored every audio log in System Shock 2, you'd have only the most bare-bones ideas of what's going on in the plot. But most of that is conveyed in those, and since that's all voice, there's no visual element to it whatsoever, they have to go the extra mile with the audio design. You get the idea I'm going for here. All I'm doing is praising her and their work in this episode. In fact, funny fact, they wouldn't even let Deborah Wilson meet the cast of Deep Space Nine until after they were done shooting. Funny stuff. Before I continue to talk about the main plot, though, I'm going to segue for a second and talk about the B-plot. Because, well, we see Quark and we see Odo, and what I don't quite get is why Odo is being quite this much a stick in the mud. Now, this is doubly amusing because of the fact that he, in addition to being such a stick in the mud, also doesn't seem to see the point of romantic, you know, like like, like a one-man anniversary, and furthermore, doesn't see the point of having a special evening with Kira. Now, you might be thinking, Lore, it's his first romantic relationship. Yeah, but Oda's been paying attention to these things for years. He is observant, he is intelligent, and he knows Kira. 
he has enough of a brain to acknowledge the fact, the very, very baseline fact that I want to do something special for you because you matter to me might actually be a good thing. If I could quote an old friend of mine who was married, um, I don't need Valentine's Day to give my wife a gift. I give my wife a gift every now and again because I feel like it. Because she's my wife and she's special to me and I love her. And I remember just being like, yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that one. It was good stuff. And that's, you'd think that would be the direction Odo would take. Instead, he's the bumbling, oh, what I'm doing thing. This is even further weird. He decides to go and pull in a hollow suite. Now, apparently she appreciates that, which I actually am legitimately surprised by. I guess in the last several years she's gotten over her dislike of the hollow suite. But Odo, there's this bit where Quark's in the cargo bay. And Quark just starts lamenting that o despite everything he did for Odo, Odo's going to beat him and he's going to go to prison. Despite everything that he did, Odo still tries to bust his balls, basically, and actually imprison him. And Quark walks off and then Odo de you know, demorphs, having been ready and in position to catch him. That's interesting, isn't it? See, here's the thing. If I was to headcanon this, if I was to speculate, I would say that Odo, well, he doesn't understand social interactions all that well, to be perfectly blunt, despite his observational skills. And so he legitimately feels that at least part of what he's been doing is showing his respect and friendship for Cork, which he has. There's absolutely no denying Odo and Quark do have a respect and friendship at this point in time, as of the end of Season 6. This is going to come up again in Season 7. And so this is his kind of way of trying to show that in his own way, to, to de demonstrate it by constantly being harsh on it, by playing their little games, without an understanding that he has pushed the line a little bit too far. There is such a thing as taking it too far, after all, and that is a concept that... A lot of people could stand to learn, after all. I'd like to think, personally, that after this episode, he pulls back a little bit. Oh, he's still going to be harsh on Quark. After all, if nothing else, Quark is on the illegal side of things and Odo is on the legal side of things. But I like to think he pulls back, at least a little bit. So let's cut to the main plot, shall we? There's this nice little bit... Where they showcase the power of the tension of the war in how people are interacting with each other. Cisco says something legitimately mean about Bashir, and he's I was just kidding. And Cassidy's like, No, you weren't. And Cisco's smile, credit to Avery Brooks, just freezes on his face. Go ahead, Worf. I point that out because I have no doubt whatsoever. That, that Cisco does like Bashir, that he is friends with Bashir. But, well, that's the power of the tension of warfare. And honestly, this probably should have been an undercurrent thread for multiple episodes. It, this feels like it comes a little bit out of nowhere. But it is still something that is very believable, even just in a vacuum. In fact, uh, the, the denouement at the end with the wake is a good example of them. In, Bashir says, I care about all of you. And sometimes it's necessary to say such things. And that's absolutely true. It's so weirdly easy for us as people to take things for granted. And while there is such a thing as overdoing it, 
there's nothing wrong with every now and again reaching out to your friends or to your lover or to your children or to your parents or to your siblings or whoever it is that you really care about and letting them know in no uncertain terms that you care about them. They may even make fun of you for it because we've, we've gotten to the point societally where it's so unusual to express that on a regular basis where it's considered, you know, uh, odd or maybe it should be private or only for special occasions. Uh, screw all that. There's nothing wrong with reaching out to your friend and saying, hey, I appreciate every one of you who watches this show and helps me to keep doing this job and keep living this life. No shame here. So, <clears throat> there's this nice bit towards the beginning of the episode to rewind a little bit where she she's like, okay, yeah, no, uh, we'll go ahead and keep talking here because it's not like there's much else I can do and hey, wait, did someone say something? As all of a sudden she can start to pick up their conversation. It's a nice little bit. What was that? Hello? Hello, please. Oh, God, please let tell me someone's there. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would feel like to, to have spent basically a day talking into a communist with no response. I know Starfleet people are tough and all, but... Yeesh. By the way, I want to tell you this because it gives you an idea of the era for she's from. So she only died three years ago, just right about when Caretaker hit. Right about when the beginning of, uh, of the Dominion War thing, or the Dominion existence, really started to be a thing. Okay, Season 3, DS9. Um, I bring that up, though, because that was the end of her mission. A little bit of rewinding of time, and we see that she left on this mission before Picard took command of the Enterprise D. That era. That's what era she's from. Think about that for a second. She was in her 50s, right? So she was. She had grown up and lived through the what I call the golden era of Star Trek. The golden era of the Federation, more accurately. She grew up in that, uh, you know, the winds of change time. And it's like, wow, yes. Um, yeah, it says a lot, and it inf it comes through in very small little ways. I feel Moore's influence here in, in the way that she talks in certain times. There's a nice little bit where she brings up, do we really need counselors, a ship counselor? Is that normal? Why is that the thing? Now, why, why is that what we have to accept? If you'll remember, a ship counselor being on the bridge, which was considered normal and acceptable, was still actually a relatively new thing at the beginning of TNG. You know, that was still something that was being pushed into Federate, uh, Starfleet, uh, I can't think of the term, modus operandi, the, the thing they do normally, right? Just interesting to think about in hindsight. So, they get up communication and she's like, okay, I can't sleep. Can we please keep talking? Yeah, sure. No problem. All right, well, let me tell you about the war. Now, I want you to once again put yourself into the mindset of someone who has who has grown up in that golden age, who has lived in a time when the only thing they had was a brief conflict with the Romulans, in, in, infrequent conflict with the Cardassians, and a brief little skirmish with the Zenkethi. That's that's it. And as, as Now, I've talked about this many times, and there's a lot of gaps in there, but the long and the short of it is, that was the big piece era. There's a reason I call it the golden era of the Federation. You've grown up in that time. Now you hear about the Dominion. Imagine going from season one TNG to the Dominion War. The actual active Dominion War. That is just a hell of a jump. And it's no wonder she's like, okay, no, stop, stop. I can't, 
I can't get any more war news. Oh my god, please stop. There's this nice little bit that happens like three or four times where she pays attention to little details and the people she's talking to, and she picks up on stuff. Now, she's seasoned and she's a captain, and that makes sense, but if I might add one little additional piece of the puzzle there, all she has is a voice, and she doesn't really have anything else to think about. So, in my experience, when you have less to pay attention to, you tend to focus in on what's there more. It's the old, you know, you, you, you go blind, so you tend to pay more attention to what you're hearing kind of a situation, right? So I think that she was paying very close attention because she was metaphorically clinging to that lifeline that that communicator represented for her. So she notices Cisco's tone when he mentions Cassidy and ends up talking him through that. Um, she she also notices that O'Brien's tone is completely different. He, he mentions, you know, I've fought the Cardassians before, but this is different. You know, this this is just something else. This is a whole new kind of war. And he's right. The Federation has arguably never fought a war like the Dominion War. Not ever. They had the big conflict with the Romulans. They had the big conflict with the Klingons. And that's kind of the only other ones that come even close to this. And I would argue very strongly that neither of those are even even close to the same scale or the same type of war. Because the Dominion is just a different type of enemy, as I've elucidated on many times. So it's no wonder O'Brien is just taking this in such a different way. But, but let me rewind a second, because she talks to Bashir, and Bashir is not listening, which is a bit of a sin, admittedly, especially since you'd think he'd be able to listen to multiple things and work at the same time. I mean, most of my friends know that while we're chatting, I'm usually getting work done on the background at the time. You know, I, granted it's not medical reports, but God's sakes, you, you can work and talk at the same time. It's not that hard. Regardless of that little irritation, I'm even more irritated by what happens next. You remember The Visitor? Pretty sure it was called The Visitor. It's a really good episode. It's actually one of my favorite episodes of DS9, with one huge, glaring flaw in the middle of it. I'm dying to tell you about how delicious carrots are. I hate that. I know it's such a wonderful episode, and it, it, it makes me cry every time I watch it. But I still, the first thing I remember about that episode is that stupid ad break. Well, they pulled the same trick here. This time they do it for comedic effect. No, no, stay away, no! Ah, cut to commercial. And then it comes back, oh, I ate her because you weren't paying attention. Now, Deborah Wilson manages that, again, Mad TV. But still, come on, episode, come on. <sighs> Anyways. <clears throat> uh... There's this wonderful bit, this is actually a nice tidbit, where they find out things are going pretty bad. And so they're like, okay, we need to hurry the hell up. And O'Brien flat out says, this is not a matter of speed. I can make this ship go faster. I cannot make this ship survive going to faster. This is not the Excelsior where we can fly her apart, damn it. This is the Defiant. It is an escort ship. It is designed to pour all that power into combat. It can manage Warp 9. But it's not designed for long-term, large, long-range, high-speed maneuvering. In fact, I've actually thought about this before. I'm pretty sure a galaxy could overall outpace a Defiant class pretty easily. Because it's designed to. More of that power is going to the engines, the structural integrity, and the overall design of the ship is built towards withstanding, not fighting. So, 
Perfectly logical. It's a nice little tidbit there in the middle of the episode. Then, <laughs> then there's this bit where Cisco talks to, uh, oh God, Deborah Wilson's character. I can't even think of the character name. Lucy, I think. No, that's wrong. Uh, it's something that weirds me out. Cusack. That's why it weirds me out. Lisa Cusack. Because, I mean, there's a, the Cusack, right? Anyways, <clears throat> she's, ta- uh, she's talking to him. And he starts talking about Cassidy. And you know what I like about this? Really? Legitimately love about this section? She tells him it's okay that you can't mix your professional life and your personal life. And she's right. You know how I mentioned earlier that we as a society, in some cultures, tend to have a problem with being open about our feelings and our thoughts and the communication problem that we tend to have? Well... A related problem is there seems to be certain expectations when it comes to relationships, romantic relationships, and about how we're supposed to share everything, we're supposed to be together and everything, and I have actually seen real-life relationships fall apart because they couldn't manage the difference between the professional and the personal. There's nothing wrong with having a part of your life that your significant other has no part of. Now, that's not necessarily true, any more than it's necessarily false, if that makes any sense. In other words, it's down to the individual circumstances. But the relevant point here is there's nothing wrong with being the type of person who has a part of your life that your significant other has no part of. And she has to tell Cisco that because it's bugging him. Because it's bothering him. No, it's just... ah, But she's right. He can't mix that, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being human. Weird, I know. Unless you're playing D&D. Never play a human in D&D. Anyways. So they find her. She's dead. Yay. You know, I spent a whole episode ranting about bad captain choices, and Sisko goes down on this extremely dangerous mission to find her himself. I mean, come on, Sisko. I just... Anyways. So. Why the time gap? Now... In my estimation, the one big thing the time gap adds to the episode is another layer of tragedy. It's not just that they weren't there in time, it's that they were never going to succeed. There was no possibility of actually accomplishing this, ever. So, the end. This is also a good example, as weird as this may sound, of type 1 time travel, by the way. Because all the information, knowledge, concepts, and literal sounds are actually being traveled through time, both forwards and back. But the idea here is that the communication always happened, that she went through and then she died, and then then happens again. There's no initial loop, there's no anything else. Time is a linear line. But anyways, so that's the only thing I can think of. It, I know that sounds like a strange thing to bring up, but it almost weirds me out, because I feel like the time delay was unnecessary. I've thought many times on if I would have them save her or not. That's a trickier question. Because I could see the relevant thematic and plot point of, first of all, not doing the expected thing. No last-minute rescue. You know, Down to the wire, we only have minutes left, and she's dead. They were too late. Now, what I was expecting when I first saw this was they were too late because they had an estimate for when she would finally get to the point of being fatally wounded. You know, to the point where they could no longer restore her body from the damage she was taking. That makes sense to me. You know, that is an estimate, after all, and there's a bajillion, trillion variables going into when a body gets to the point where it can no longer be recovered. So, logic. Okay. But adding that extra layer means it was always fruitless. That there is nothing you could do about losing the people in your life. 
Now, as weird as this is going to sound, remember, by this point, they knew well in advance. In fact, there's a bit where O'Brien says, you know, we're going to lose people, we're going to be pulled apart, and there's going to be people not here. Camera cuts to Jadzia. <laughs> and then cuts back. Very obvious. They knew. It is my estimation that that's part of why that was put in. To exemplify the fact that Jadzia Dax, Terry Farrell, was leaving the show the end. A little bit of writer bitterness built into it, if I might be so bold. What do you guys think? Because believe it or not, I do like reading your guys' comments every Monday and Tuesday. It's a little, nice little treat for me. But now that I can tell you about that. <clears throat> last thing I want to mention here. Very last thing. Towards the beginning, when she's still just talking to a comm unit, well before they actually established two-way communication... She says a line, very poignantly, Tell me I'm not going to die alone. So this is my question to you. Did she die alone, or did she not? Because I could see an argument both ways. Next week, well, it's the end of season six, and I'm not looking forward to talking about that one. I'll see you next time, guys.